of Psalms as a whole. The title to the book of Psalms in Hebrew means praises. But praises are not the most common variety of psalms. We'll talk about that more in weeks to come. But one of the things that interests me is that psalms covers such a wide span of time. For example, Psalm 90 is associated with Moses. And if we date the Exodus about 1445, Moses would have died before 1405. So you have Psalm 90 that goes back that far, and Psalm 126, which deals with the return from captivity, which was no earlier than 539 or 538 B.C., So you see that Psalms span almost 1,000 years. And that is an amazing thing. Now something, again, I'm just going to mention tonight briefly, but we're going to talk about this a little bit as we go throughout the book of Psalms, Lord willing, is... um, language or poetic language. 
Job and look at the symptoms that Job describes and find out what disease he suffered with? Can we do that? Are we meant to do that? Or are those things given for that purpose? Let me tell you about a word that you may or may not recognize. Some of you won't recognize. But you understand it. And that is the word genre. Genre. It's just fun to say sometimes. Genre. Now, that word is described as a category of art, music, or literary composition. For example, if you say that you like to listen to country music, uh, country western music, that's a genre, isn't it? And we understand the concept even though we don't use the word. Let me illustrate. You're seeing a movie. You're watching a television show or reading a book. And there's a librarian, a young librarian, working after hours. The library is closed and she is stacking books. Unbeknownst to her, there's a man that's sneaking up by her, behind her, in the library. What's going to happen next? Now, I know some of you have jaded minds and you say, she's going to be killed. Which I probably am among those. Let me ask you this. Suppose you know going in this is a comedy. Do you have different expectations if you are watching a comedy? Or if this is a romance, do you come in with yet other expectations? You see how we read and understand something often depends on Genre. It depends on the type or category of art or literature it is. Now, understanding, I want to use a passage outside the book of Psalms, and I want to illustrate this. If you open your Bibles to Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah Much of it is written in historical narrative. But this is written in poetry. A matter of fact, about one-third or one-fourth of the Old Testament is written in poetry. And even many of the prophets' message are composed in poetry. But listen to Jeremiah 20, beginning with verse 14. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you and made me very happy. It made him very happy. 
Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Now, this is a question that I want you to, to think about. You can feel free to answer if you want to or feel free to ask a question. But, but, but I want you to think about that. Is Jeremiah speaking here completely literally? Or is he speaking figuratively? And if figuratively, what does he mean? Does he literally pronounce a curse? Of, he pronounces curses the man who brought my father the news that a child had been born. The news that a child had been born then and now is good news. But he pronounces a curse upon the man who brought that news in verses 15 and 16 and said, may he be overthrown like the Lord overthrew cities without relenting. Probably a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Does he really want that man to be destroyed because he was kind enough and excited enough to announce the news to his father that a child was born? We can go one further. Look at verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. Because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. If someone wanted to defend abortion biblically, could they go to this verse? Is he literally saying that he should have killed me while I was in my mother's womb? Obviously, he's not speaking with exact literalness. What he is doing is expressing in the most dramatic, the most poetic language that he wishes that he were never born. What poetic language loses in exact it makes up for the emotional effect. He could have said that in a more tame way, in a more sterile way, but would we have seen the depths of his despair if he had? And I want to tell you, when you are overwhelmed with grief, when you are overwhelmed with despair, passages like this can give you hope. I know that doesn't sound rational, but they can give you hope. One, because you know other people have been there. Other people have experienced the same emotion. But this passage illustrates a problem we're going to encounter in Psalms. How literally do we sometimes take the descriptions that the writer gives 
how much allowance do we allow for figure view? Second, are the Psalms a message to God or are they a message from God? Does anyone want to volunteer to answer that question? How would you answer that? Are they a message to God or from God? Yes. That is how I also would answer that question. And when you have a two-part question to answer, yes. Um, I think they're both. Now, for a second, let's talk about the concept of inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I firmly believe that. Does God always inspire Scripture the same way? Let me illustrate. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 32, 15 and 16, when Moses brings them down from Mount Sinai, it says they were written with the finger of God. God wrote those directly. Now, I know that after he destroys that set of commandments, the second time, God tells Moses to write them down. But sometimes, inspiration meant that God wrote the very words with his finger. At other times, inspiration according to Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, meant research, investigation, interviewing eyewitnesses, and then compiling records based on that. Inspiration can cover both of those. Now let me tell you what I'm really getting at. Even though I disagree with them theologically, I do have a great deal of respect for Jehovah's Witnesses because of the diligence with which they seek to try to teach their fellow man. And over the years, I've been involved in several conversations with them and have received several books from them. And one of their books was describing the process of inspiration. And it described it like this. And I think this is probably the concept that a lot of us have. God inspired the scriptures like a boss and has a man standing there and he has a secretary who is typing a letter and it says God inspired scripture like a boss may dictate a letter to a secretary. Does that work sometimes with the process of inspiration? Well, I think we've already shown, yes, sometimes that does. But that's not the only way to describe inspiration. Let me illustrate something. You know Psalm 51, where David pours out his heart before God about his sin with Bathsheba. Was that a forced 
confession of sin? Or did David write that of his own will? When the writers of Psalms 145 to 150 call everyone to praise the Lord, are those statements of forced praise? Or were they doing that of their own free will? I think in the book of Psalms, the writers pour out their emotions before God. They pour out the depths of their heart. They pour out their heights and great experiences in praise to God. The writers express their highs and their lows. Psalms is attractive to us because it is a very human book. But is Psalms simply a human book and the product of human achievement? Or is it also God speaking through the human authors? Now I'm going to give you some passages on the board which I think all emphasize that the book of Psalms is a message from God as well. Now, each of these passages comes from the New Testament. The first one is Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, 43, and 44. And this passage is also found in Mark 12 and verse 36. The wording in Mark 12, 36 is just a little different, but it has the most important parts that I'm seeking to emphasize. In Matthew 22, in verses 43 and 44, he said to them, then how does God, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. That is a reference to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies as a footstool for your feet. But notice it says that David said this in the Spirit. He said this in the Spirit. He is not simply speaking his words, but he is being directed by God's Spirit. Let's look at a couple of verses in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, are dealing with Judas. As it deals with Judas, it's going to quote Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. Verse 20 is going to quote these two verses. Verse 20 is going to quote Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But I want you to notice how that quote is introduced in verse 16. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. David is pouring out his heart. David is pouring out his experiences. David is speaking in the depths of his emotion. But also, the Holy Spirit was speaking 
by him. The same is found in Acts 4, verses 25 and 26. In Acts 4, 25 and 26, which quotes from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And there in Psalm, in Acts 5, uh, 4, 25, who by the Holy Spirit, talking about the Father, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, your servant, said. So these are affirming that these books are more than human works. They are divine works. In Hebrews 3, verse 7, the Bible introduces a quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, and it says the Holy Spirit spoke. The point that I'm trying to stress, all of these show us as these people were pouring out their heart and their grief and their emotions, as it's a very human book. It is a thoroughly divine that ultimately these words were not just the words of the human speakers. They were the words of God. And therefore, when we are broken and discouraged, and we want to know how to approach God, we can use the song for instruction. When we are excited and on top of the world, and we want to praise God, we can use the Psalms for instruction as to how to do that. So yes, as as, uh, Nina said, they are both a message to God and from God. Okay. One more before we get into the text. Um, How do the Psalms speak of Christ? Let me ask you a question that I hope you have a prepared Is Psalms the longest book of the Bible? Is Psalms the longest book of the Bible? What would you say? It is not. On basis of what would you say that? Okay. Let me encourage you to look up what's the longest book of the Bible. And to look on several sides, and they're going to give different answers as to what the longest book is. Jeremiah is actually the longest when it comes to Hebrew words. There are many more Hebrew words, I think 3,000 more, in the book of Jeremiah than the book of Psalms. The book of Genesis also is longer than the book of Psalms. There will be some things you will look up, though, that still describe Psalms as the longest book. What they are basing it on is the number of verses in the book. Not the number of Hebrew words, but the number of verses. And do you know that Psalms has almost one thousand more verses than the second closest book, Genesis. And that's really amazing. But what point am I making of that? This is the point that I want to make. While Psalms is not the longest book according to Hebrew words, and by the way I want to say that because 
couple of years that I taught in college, I, I said it was the longest, just assuming that. And I want to correct any false doctrine that I've spread. But in spite of the fact that it's not the longest, it is the book that is quoted most frequently in the New Testament. That becomes even more powerful if it's not the longest book. Psalms is quoted most frequently. Isaiah is second. And Deuteronomy, interestingly, is third. This is what we want to do as we go throughout the Psalms. And I'm not going to illustrate this right now. But what we want to do is we want to see how some of these Psalms speak of Jesus. And we'll get a chance with Psalm 2, Lord willing, next week. We want to see how they speak of Jesus. And and let that lead us to see other Psalms. And what they're saying about Jesus, even if they're not specifically quoted in the New Testament. Now, I don't mean to lose you with the introduction, and there are a lot of more issues we could have touched upon. Does anyone have a question about any of that or another issue that you think needs to be dealt with right up front? We will not go at extensively with that kind of material usually. Let's read Psalm 1. Let's read Psalm 1. This is what you've been waiting for. Some of you have been reading it over and over or listening to it over and over. And let's read the text. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, there are different outlines that can be made of Psalm 1. Different outlines that can legitimately be made. But uh, here is one that I felt was pretty good. That verses 1 through 3 shows the solid foundation of the righteous. Verses 4 and 5 show that the impermanence, I think I spelled that correctly, the impermanence of the wicked, and verse 6 contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Let me ask you a question. You may not agree with my answer. If you did not know where that passage was, you did not know we were reading Psalm 1, and this is a well-known psalm, If you didn't know that, what book of the Bible would you most readily attribute that to? 
I would too. Yeah, I would too. It sounds more like Proverbs because Proverbs starkly contrast those two ways, those two roads uh, that are described. Um, now, we'll come back. We'll give you another. We'll probably we'll read the text one more time with that outline up or, or this up. I wanted to point out some key words in Psalm 1. The word no or not. Now, I've already re- recognized a mistake in this PowerPoint. I should have added, there's also a reference in verse 3 to the word no or not. When I mention verse 1 three times, I mean the word no or not is used three times there, then it's used in 3, 4, and 5. So six times in this chapter, you have the word no or not. This is a negative description of the righteous man. There are some things that the righteous man is not. It uses the term way or path some three times, the same Hebrew word, the word for wicked, twice, and the word righteous is used twice. This is inconsistent because sometimes I put down the psalm and sometimes I didn't just put down the verse. I apologize for that inconsistency. But I think this sums up a lot of what's in Psalm 1. That it's talking about the contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person. It's talking about the two different paths, the two different ways that they can take. It describes the righteous man positively in what he does, but it also describes him more often negatively in what he does not do. And the wicked man is described as what is not true of him as well. With that, let's read this short psalm again. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is one statement that I ran across in reading different things on Psalm 1. Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our lives. Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our lives. And you are blessed You aren't being shaped of the counsel of the wicked, of the path of sinners, or by scoffers. 
But if you delight in God's law, you are blessed. What shapes your thinking? What shapes your life? Now, I ask you to always seek to hang in there. If the discussion for a moment seems too technical, because there's going to be a practical point of this. What's very common in Hebrew poetry is what's called parallelism. When I think of American poetry, I think of rhyme. I don't know about you, and I can remember, of course, in first grade, roses are red, violets are blue, and some other great works of poetry like that, that emphasize rhyme. But in Hebrew, parallelism was very distinctive. And what you have is blessed is the one, notice the verbs, he does not walk, he does not stand, he does not sit. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the, the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way with sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers. Now, those three words are basically parallel. They're basically parallel. But, in a way, what they do is they sum up all of life. Remember when Deuteronomy 6, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one God, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall talk of His way, when you, when you talk of His will, when you walk, when you... Um, when you lie down, when you rise up. But, but, but Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, I'm not quoting it accurately, but Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 is just using those different expressions as a description of the whole of life. And that may be what Psalm 1 is doing. But also, it may be that there is a, a growing intensification. A man named Robert Alter had done a lot of study on Hebrew poetry. And he said, most times, the second line of poetry is an intensification of the first line. He stated that he thinks in about 70% of the cases that that is the situation. Let me give you an example. Turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 Psalm 72 is a psalm that will speak of the king. And Psalm 72 verse 9 says, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the nomads bow. Let his enemies lick the dust. Now, basically, those lines are saying the same thing, aren't they? bowing and licking this, but there is an intensification in that second line. The second line is stronger than the first. And so it is in Psalm in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk with the counsel of the wicked. 
you're walking with the first. Then you're feeling more comfortable so that you are standing with them. And finally, you are so comfortable that you are sitting with them. One writer used the example of Lot as an illustration of people who become increasingly comfortable in the house of the wicked. First, Lot pitches his tent toward Sodom in Genesis 13, verse 12. Then he is living in Sodom in Genesis 14, verse 12. And then in Genesis 19, verse 1, he is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He is a leader of the city. He has become increasingly entangled in that city. And the Bible's telling us if you don't walk that way and live that way, you are blessed. It is exciting to see all of you younger people here tonight. And I know what I'm about to say does not apply to you exclusively. It applies to those of us who are older. But understand, When you are watching a movie, when you are watching a television show, those writers often have an agenda that they are trying to create and a worldview that they are expressing, that they are trying to convert you to. Beware of that. And blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He not He is one, not just one, who reads the text, who marks off the fact that he's read a chapter or two each day. This is a person, a man or a woman, who delights in God's message. One of the Ten Commandments, says, you shall not covet. But do you know that sometimes that word covet is used positively? Not often, but a few times. Let me give you one example. Psalm 19, verse 10 talking about the law of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. That's our word. Desire is the word covet. Do you covet this message? Do you desire this word? Do you long for it? Is it shaping your thinking? 
Is it shaping your worldview? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this term, day and night, An English description that we have of this is that this is a merism. And what a merism does, it takes two extremes, like day and night. And what it does is say not only does he meditate on them in these times of extreme, day and night, but also everywhere in between. In his law, he meditates day and and nine. Do you know among the Dead Sea Scroll community, the Essenes, they had someone apparently whose assignment it was to be studying the law and they would be someone this hour and someone that hour. But every 24 hours of the day, someone in their community, was studying scripture. I always thought that we should emphasize that at college. Uh, it's easier to get college students awake at three to four than it may be here in this congregation. I don't know. Um, if, if you're up at three to four, it's probably because you're getting up. It's because probably in college they haven't gone to bed. Uh, but nonetheless... You understand a point. To make this a priority in our individual lives and in our community to meditate on the law day and night. A couple of passages are good to write down here. And I've got them written down in my biblical text. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 through 20. In the context, this is describing the king of Israel. One day Israel will have a king. He is not to multiply silver and gold. He is not to multiply uh, wives. He is not to multiply horses. Because all of those things will turn his heart away from God. The one positive the king is commanded in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, is that he was to write a copy of the law. He was to write a copy of the law and to read it all his life. Several years ago in a meeting, I met a new convert who was seeking to write out the whole Bible just as a way to help him get that down. And the king was told to write a copy of the law, to read it all the days of his life. And if he took it and he read it, the benefit was that his heart would not be lifted up above his brethren and that he wouldn't turn to the right or to the left, but he would continue to walk in the way of God. His delight was to be in the law of the Lord. Another passage that I would encourage you to write down is Joshua 1, verse 8. Joshua 1, verse 8. When God gives instruction to Joshua, he tells him this in Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. And there's a description of this man. In this description of the solid foundation of the righteous, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What is the significance of a tree being planted by the water? Oh, you know. It's fed constantly. It constantly has access to nourishment. It is planted by the water. And uh, it yields its fruit in its season. I want to tell you another passage to jot down here. And that is Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. It compares the wicked to a brush in an arid place and the righteous to a tree in a well-watered place. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Yes, ma'am. But it is telling us 
you are not walking in the counsel of the wicked, if you are meditating on the way of God, that is ultimately the path to life. That is ultimately the path of salvation and blessing. And if you are on the path of the world, listening to the wicked and the, and the and sinners and scoffers, then you are on the path that leads to destruction. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Verse 5. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. Say a word in verse 4 about chaff. Remember how John, Jesus used the illustration in Matthew 3 verse 12, or actually John the Baptist used the illustration of the wheat chaff. Chaff is light, unsubstantial, insubstantial, insignificant, to be swept away. And the wicked are like chaff blown away by the wind. And they're not going to stand in the judgment. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the way of the wicked will perish. I shouldn't have have erased that. Because verse 6 is an example of parallelism as well. Verse 6 is an example of parallelism. But it is an example, and let me just stop there, abbreviate, okay? <laughs> it is an example of what we would call antithetical parallelism. And that is it shows the it makes the same point twice, once by showing something and then by showing its opposite side. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, the wicked are opposite of the righteous, the wicked will perish. All that is contained in the word know is opposed by the word perish and vice versa. The Lord knows our way. It means more than simply He is familiar with what we are doing because He knows that of the wicked. But He knows it in the sense that He approves it. You remember the statement that Jesus will make to some in judgment. I never knew you. Matthew 7. In verse 23. This is not the point. Psalm 1, as it tells us these two paths, it is summing up a common biblical idea, a common biblical theme. Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20, I said before you the way of life, the way of death, the way of blessing, the way of cursing. He is showing them two paths. Jeremiah is offering the people a way to life in Jeremiah 21, verses 8 through 10. Come out and surrender to the Babylonians and live. Stay in the city and you shall die. 
often two paths were described. The same thing in Psalm 1. The way of life and death. The way to live and the way to be destroyed. But these two different paths have eternal, they have eternal implications according to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. The broad way and the, the broad way and the wide road that leads to destruction. The straight way and the narrow gate that leads to life. I'm not saying that our first interpretation of Psalm 1-5 and the judgment needs to be the final judgment. But I would say in light of all of the Scripture, in all the Bible says, it is not too much to say that this is a psalm that ultimately deals with the eternal destinies of both of these groups. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. You all have been a very good audience, have listened very well. Is there anything that I could answer, that I could say uh, that's going to help you, or any question that you have to ask about that? In verse uh, 3, it was suggested that maybe their garden of Eden moved from there, which is interesting. That is interesting. Remember, often, here's a a phrase. I'm going to read Proverbs 3.18. The Bible says, talking about wisdom, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And that term tree of life is used four or five times in the book of Proverbs. So yes, I, that's interesting, John. Very, very interesting. It may be Garden of Eden imagery that's used there. Good point. Yes, John. You said that by following a, a certain life that's described here, we're not guaranteed any, you know, certain physical... Uh, blessings or, or whatever it might be, but I guess I guess my thought of that is it, it says this man he light is in the law of the Lord. So yeah. at, at the end of the day, I think it's saying, you know, what are you aiming at? If, Absolutely, you know, aim, aim at something you're. I can get it. You know? you're, you're exactly right. There's a passage that says this. This is Psalm 37, verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the joys of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Uh, does that mean you're going to have the finest car, or to wear the finest clothing, or to have the highest paying job? Delight yourself in the Lord, and you will receive the greatest of all blessings. The Lord Himself. He will give you the desires of your heart. So what you're saying there fits perfectly for the one who delights in God's word, delights in God's law. I think is a blessing to be able to 
live in this country, to be able to have a house, if you can find one on sale, if you to have a house, to have a little piece of land, uh, I think those things are great blessings. And don't real, don't forget how few people had them. Even though, and, and we lived in a country for a year, wasn't in poverty conditions, but it's not like exactly what we've got here. You know, that's a great blessing, that American dream. But I don't tell you what's the greatest thing. Is that we're able to worship God openly and freely and follow His will openly and freely. And may that always be the case for our children and our grandchildren. That is the greatest of all blessings. Um, to light ourselves in His law and to meditate on it day and night. Yes. Drugs 
highest respect because they have realized that is a path and that is a way that leads to destruction. And those kind of ties in. And the world looks at us and thinks, you don't have any fun. I look at them and say, you think that's fun? I just, I don't, don't see it. Guys, I appreciate it. I did a kind of informal count as I was trying to teach, so it wasn't probably too accurate, but I had about 55 or so. And I don't know if anybody else did count, and I probably missed some. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you, younger people, for being here. And feel free afterwards, if you've got a question, to ask that. As we close, Brad, would